Rosie. Daniel. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Look who's here in the studio. It's me. How's it feel to be in here? Well, I was a little nervous Uh earlier, but Mm -hmm. now I'm a little more calm. Wonderful. And I'm staring directly (laughs) into your eyes. But we do that all the time anyway. Yeah, but there's not always all this equipment in between us. Well, maybe this will help. Let's play a game. Okay. So I'm thinking maybe like uh, taboo. Taboo. Like I'll give you some clues and then you'll have to guess what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Does that know, make sense? I know how to play taboo, Daniel. Oh, you'd prefer if I did not taboo-splain? Yes, please. All right, let's get started. Timer on the clock. Ooh. All right, first up. Okay. It's an independent podcast app. Got it. It embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. Mm-hmm. It has no exclusives. Mm-hmm. No premium content. All right. No paywalls. Great. And it's a great podcast app for everyone. Mm-hmm. Do you think you know it? I think I do. Huh. What do you think it is? Sounds like the Overcast app. Toots got it. Yay. Look at that. I win. Nicely done. How does one get the app? Well, if one were to want to get the app, one could get it for free in the app store. Fantastic. Cool. You going to check it out? I might. Very wonderfully noncommittal. Excellent. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. All right. Let's get out of here. Bye. So, the uh, following program is brought to you by Haymarket Books. At a time like this, radical ideas are obviously needed more than ever. And um, Haymarket, uh, as well as producing uh, these virtual events, Brings out books by Arundhati Roy, Kianga Yamada Taylor, Angela Davis, Naomi Klein, and many other wonderful writers. And uh, if you're moved by any of the program that you're about to see, you can support the work of Haymarket by. Uh, buying their books from their own website. And even better, you can join the Haymarket Book Club. I read a lot of books, man. Now to our program. If you're joining us tonight, you probably already know that racism is a public health crisis. I see it every day as a nurse in Chicago. My name is Elaine Mister. I'm a nurse at the University of Chicago Medical Center and a member of the National Nurses United, the largest union for registered nurses in the country. I wanna share just one experience before I introduce our panelists. About five or six years ago, a frustrated cardiologist asked for my assistance. His patient who was in heart failure was in the hospital or the emergency room every three to five days with the same complaint of shortness of breath. Now, despite this patient being adamant that he's taking his medications as prescribed, what we determined was that he lives in a food desert. He goes to McDonald's every three to five days. I mean, I'm sorry, he goes to McDonald's three to five, two to three times a day. I'm sorry, he goes to McDonald's two to three times a day to eat because it is too taxing for him to go to a grocery store that's outside of his neighborhood to get access to fresh fruits and vegetables. And I wanna draw your attention 
to an article published by the Chicago Defender back on January 1st, uh, January 7th, I, I believe, of 2020 by Kim Durden. She challenges us to drive down 63rd Street, 71st Street, 75th Street, 79th Street, 83rd Street, from Stony Island East to West on Damon Street and count the number of grocery stores that you see in those neighborhoods. You won't find them. What you will find are gas stations with food marts, no fresh fruits or vegetables in those places, or a corner little food mart, no, no, food, uh, no fresh fruits or vegetables in those places as well. You also find liquor stores with foods, foods inside, again, no access to fresh fruits and vegetables. This is why I'm excited to introduce our panel tonight, who's going to discuss racism, the impacts that racism has on outcomes for brown and black communities, especially in Chicago. I'll introduce our speakers and they'll give us a brief background on, of their experience. After that, we'll take your questions and answers. I'm sorry, after that, we'll take your questions from the comments on YouTube and from comments on Facebook Live to share with our panelists. Let's get started. First, I'm going to introduce you to Dr. Linda Ray Murray. Dr. Murray is an MD with MPH and has been a voice for social justice and health as a basic human right for over 50 years. In the Cook County Health System, she previously served as Chief Medical Officer for Primary Care. Tonight, Dr. Murray is speaking as a member of Physicians for a National Health Program. Thank you, Dr. Murray. It's a pleasure to be here. I think that this kind of forum is important, but it says something that I think many people are listening and, and watching this, this uh, event already know. Uh, racism has been a problem, a public health problem, a medical problem, a moral problem. It's been a problem in the United States since the United States was founded. So this in and of itself is not new. I think what's going on today, just as we see uh, our young people in the streets protesting uh, police brutality and, and racism, uh, as we have this global pandemic unveiling the structural racism that undergirds everything in this country, I think that the community, the health community, and certainly the public health community has recognized that the time has come to say openly that this is a public health problem. This is a, this is a problem that kills black and brown people. It kills Native American people. It's been killing us for 500 years. And unless we're willing to step up and confront it directly, it'll keep on killing future generations. So, so I'm glad to be here tonight, and, and I hope we get into some discussion and questions about how this pandemic is actually caused by racism. One of the underlying problems with the coronavirus, even though people think it's a virus, one of the underlying problems with it is that it's fundamentally based on racism, from the climate change that helped make these pandemics happen more frequently to how our country is res not responding uh, to it and is unable to respond to it. When you underfund a public health system like we've done for the past 30 years, when you underfund public education, when you force people to work for sub living wages, then you get the kinds of differences in mortality and morbidity that we've seen. Thank you, Dr. Murray. 
Let's jump in and hear from Stacey Davis-Gates. Stacey Davis-Gates is the Vice President of the Chicago Teachers Union and Executive Vice President of the Illinois Federation of Teachers. This past fall, Ms. Gates helped to lead a 15-day strike and to negotiate a historic contract that provides for smaller class sizes, ensures a nurse and a social worker in every Chicago public school, secures sanctuary uh, protections for immigrant families, and supports students and families experiencing homelessness. Ms. Gates, thank you for joining us. Thank you all for having me. I mean, look, bottom line is um, the, the safety net that doesn't exist is front and center right now. As Black people continue to be infected um, with COVID, die of COVID, um, our Latinx community, our immigrant communities are, you know, suffering from a healthcare um, situation. And we have Mercy Hospital, you know, announcing its closure on the south side of Chicago. Um, look, I, I feel like a broken record. I don't have anything new to say. The white supremacy that undergirds this nation has made every single decision, every single system, every single thing that is supposed to provide safety, cover, um, support to black folks harder to obtain because white supremacy. You know, the work in this moment that we are seeing in terms of Black Lives Mattering is how we all get free and get to the other side of like this awful pandemic of racism. To continue to talk about it without action, to continue to talk about this thing without putting forth, you know, demands and being willing to shut it down if we don't get it, it's kind of where we are right now. Um, we are closing down bars in the city of Chicago on criteria that is more stringent than for reopening schools where black children, brown children, and immigrant children will attend. Schools that have cops but do not have nurses. Um, we got to fight about it and we got to take the win that we need. Um, we can say a lot of great things on this call. I'm sorry, on this, you know, Skype today. But the bottom line is until we are ready to take power from those who continue to deny us basic humanity, then we're going to continue to have this discussion. Um, 25 years ago this summer, we were talking about the public health crisis um, that, that was just killing Chicagoans because it was hot outside. Um, we got to really think about what it will take to get there, what we are willing to do in order to get there, and supporting those, quite frankly, who are doing the work to get there. Um, I can't be any more profound than that. We got to take it. Thank you. Thank you, Stacey. Okay, our next panelist is Jeff Howard. Jeff is the executive vice president of SEIU Local 73 and a rank and file union member for 30 years. In this time, he has served as a shop steward, organizing director, state director, secretary treasurer, and more. Jeff believes we must ignite our brothers and sisters in the struggle for workplace justice. Thank you, Jeff, for being on this uh, Skype. 
Thank you, Elaine. And uh, thank you to Haymarket Books for putting on this forum. Um, uh, I want to thank Elaine, Dr. Murray, Stacy, and Damon for the work that you guys do. I think Stacy hit it on the head. We could talk this to death, right? But it's really about what are the actions that we're going to do to sort of try to change 400 years of systemic racism, 150 years of African-Americans having lack of access to uh, the same health care that all others do in our country, right? You know, our local is a local of 30,000 members. And on behalf of our president, Diane Palmer, I just want to once again say thank you for inviting me um, to speak at this forum. You know, our membership, predominantly, we have over 30,000 members. And predominantly in the city of Chicago, we have around 17,000 members. And overwhelmingly, all of those workers are African-American or people of color. And so when this pandemic hit, when a lot of people got to go home, our people were at work and they've been on the front line since day one, fighting for PPEs, fighting for just the basic things that they can have so that this city can continue to run. So they're called what we call essential workers, right? We work at the airport. Um, we work in animal control. We work in the hospitals at UIC. And we've lost members um, due to this pandemic. I know, Elaine, you can, you can probably speak to this as you guys have probably lost nurses um, in this, at, during this time, right? Um, and so what do we have to do? Black folks instinctively know that we have fewer doctors, fewer dentists. And when we do go to the doctor, that our outcomes are not the same because one, we're not believed when we go to the doctor. We don't really get the information we need. It was funny, just before this call, my doctor called me to give me some news about, granted it was only my knee, but he was really just sort of cavalier about, oh, Jeff, you probably need to have surgery on your knee. I'm just like, yeah, all right, yeah. Just tell me that before I go on the call, <laughs> knee surgery. But, you know, it's just like, there's no, um, and that's why we as African-Americans, one, we have disparate care, but then also the care that we get is lacking or lack of empathy or caring or even believing. Um, and so we can talk about that. So I'll just talk about what our union is doing with regard to racism and trying to attack systemic and structural racism. So on, on July 20th, we held a national day of action. We called it a strike um, for Black Lives Matter. And we did events all over the country here in Chicago. We did events at Chicago East Public Schools. We did events at UIC, Stroger Hospital and Cook County Jail, all because we know um, Black Lives Matter and there's no economic justice or healthcare justice without racial justice. And I just wanna lift up a couple voices of some of our members who spoke on July 20th. First, Denise Murchison, who was supposed to be on the, this call today, but she couldn't because of a situation. Um, she's, a, she's a social worker at Stroger Hospital. And, I, and she said, we have to realize the complete foundational inequality. We have to realize the complete in foundational inequality in this country. Black neighborhoods have suffered tremendously because of the racial injustices they face. Black schools don't receive the funding they need and black lives are being taken away on camera on what seems to be a daily basis. We have to rise up against structural racism that's destroying our country. And for black and brown workers especially, it means demanding what we deserve. And then Sylvia Kaiser spoke to the same issue about workers not being respected, workers being taken for granted, 
that our neighborhoods are poor. And so um, those are just two workers. And, and if I could ask, if we could have a brief moment of silence, if we've lost probably 10 or 15 of our members um, uh, to death for COVID, um, and I'm sure others know someone who's passed away, a family member of some, so I was wondering if we could just take a brief moment of silence for those who've passed away. Thank you. So right now, some of the things that we're trying to do is, um, in our Cook County units, um, we're trying to offer a budget plan that's gonna break down the current inequitable system and build a new system that serves all Cook County communities equitably. At the University of Chicago, we're currently engaged in negotiations where we think racial justice starts with paying our workers. 95% of our building service workers at the hospital are people of color and they make less than $15 an hour. And so we wanna get them to the minimum of $15 an hour. We wanna make sure that our safety net hospitals continue to stay open. We're gonna to continue to fight for what we think is one of the most important issues is that police reform. And our union has supported the ordinances, the Civilian Police Accountability Council, commonly known as CPAC, because we think that sort of changes the way policing is done in our community. And with that, I will uh, leave it and turn it back over uh, to the rest of the forum. And I'm excited to hear from my brother, Damon, who I know has some insightful things to say. Thank you so much, Jeff. If I had known that, I will let you introduce Damon. Damon, is, Damon Williams is a movement builder, organizer, educator, and media maker. Damon wears many hats and is the co-founder of Hashtag Let Us Breathe Collective and Ergo Media. Tonight, we are honored to have him speaking as a member of the Black Abolitionist Network. Welcome, Damon. Hello, everybody. It's, it's really um, an honor and pleasure to be here. Um, and, and, you know, to, to the panelists, I, I respect and admire you all and, you know, what y'all do makes our work and our movement possible. So there's just a lot of, lot of gratitude and humility to be in this space. Um, so I want to first, you know, uh, name what, what is happening on the ground uh, and, and what the, the, the banner umbrella, uh, the work of the Movement for Black Lives or what we call Black Lives Matter or, or however you understand this time of resistance and liberation, uh, what we are pushing for but I also want to expand the conversation and just be a little bit more structural in this time. Uh, so first, I just want to uplift the campaign to defund the Chicago Police Department, so defund CPD. Um, and if you look up that hashtag, you will see a list of demands uh, that starts with redistributing uh, three-fourths of the Chicago Police Department budget uh, into communal resources, into namely public health, education, and housing. Uh, and so, you know, that is important and also naming that uh, we believe that police should not be in public institutions uh, and, and how do we then uh, create new versions of wellness protection or safety if, if that is the word that we must use. Uh, and I wanna get us to thinking about this within a larger historical abolitionist framework, uh, but, but it's really exciting to be able to talk about this in terms of health because so often we only talk about anti-Black violence, policing, and racism at large as a crisis of, of politics or economics or, or social interaction, uh, but it's also a biological crisis. Um, and so naming policing anti-Black violence at large as a health crisis is really important to be able to really speak to the humanity and the life-based nature of our oppression, but also the possibilities of our liberation. Uh, and so one thing that I really want to uplift in this space whenever we're talking about 
police violence and how that affects our health, or whenever we're talking about the disparities and the equities in healthcare and how that affects Black people, is that we must be naming capitalism as a destructive system. Uh, and I think to be more accurate and more specific, naming racial capitalism. And I think for this conversation, using that framework is really important. And just saying racial capitalism is killing us. Uh, and that's what we are seeing in this profit-based notion of healthcare and healing that we experience in our society. Um, and the, 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 the um, inequities and the, the, the voids and the gaps that that profit-based motive system creates is what police are hired to respond to. Uh, and so I want to speak lar larger about abolition, uh, which I think scares or frightens or discomforts a lot of people. Uh, but just to simplify, abolition, in my understanding, is a push for healthy environments and healthy communities. Uh, and that's what we are saying we want our resources to be invested into. Uh, because when we say the word health, uh, to me, I break things down etymologically to think about language and not health is an expression of healing. Um, and so we need healing responses to the conflict that we are experiencing and to the crisis and to the epidemic that are happening in our communities. Uh, and we believe that carceral institutions, military solutions uh, are not healing, that they are destructive and that they are inherently violent. And so to be continuing a system based out of slavery, warfare, and torture to respond to the crisis of food deserts, addiction, domestic violence, mental health crisis um, is a compounding effect that we really need to take a radical shift away from and reimagine how human relationships are governed. And that is a notion of health. Uh, and so I also, you know, in this conversation, want to make sure that we name that, you know, what we are saying is we want to give resources to healthcare workers, to healthcare institutions, but naming that the institutions as they stand uh, perpetuate and are organized in ways that, are, that uh, expand anti-Blackness and also collaborate with, with carcer incarceration and carceral logics. Uh, and so as we're having this conversation about a larger investment in healthcare, we also need to be thinking about uh, a radically different form of healthcare uh, that does not support or does not interact uh, with state violence in a way that has been normalized in our society. So uh, there's a lot more that, that, that I can say, but I would say violence um, is caused and a consequence of, of illness, or violence is a cause of illness and is also a consequence of illness. Uh, and so the investment into state violence is an investment into illness and disorder. Um, and we need to stop that immediately and start investing into healing and to health. Uh, and, and that is how we address racism on a structural level in our system. Defund CPD. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Damon. Okay, uh, we'll go back around one more time to our panelists. Uh, just for their comments based on what their other panelists have just said. If there's anything additional that you would like to add. And we'll start off with Dr. Linda Ray Murray. Well, I'm glad Brother uh, Williams brought up racial capitalism. I just want to say a couple of things that lead up of what he was talking about. <clears throat> when we say racism, we think of it, we tend to think of it very concretely. But I think that, that Damon has pointed out that we have to remember it historically. So when we talk about racial capitalism, what are we really saying? What we're really saying is the economic system that has dominated the world for the past 500 years and certainly dominates our country grew up along with racism. I would argue you can't have the kind of system we have today in this country without also having racism. And, and I want it's hard when someone's hitting you over the head. The first thing you want to do is stop that. But remember, health is created and sickness is created. So being healthy doesn't just mean going to the doctor, even though we should have universal uh, Medicare for all, we should have a single payer 
medical system yesterday in this country. We certainly need it in this crisis of the pandemic. But that alone is not going to make us healthy, certainly as people of color. So what that means is we have to really change the way the society is structured. When you have racism and some people are kept down, what that also means is that some people are unfairly kept up. Some people get unfair advantage. We should never forget that. So if we're going to restructure the country and really destroy structural racism, we have to build in values that we want. Uh, it's not just a question of stopping bad stuff from happen, happening. It's a question of actively building in a different value system um, that, that, uh, that allows people to get healthy and stay healthy. So, so that's the thing that I would say. So, and I, let me just say this, I'm not against defunding the police, but that's not enough money. Okay. If we took all the money from the Chicago police, that's not enough money for what we need to do in terms of taking care of our children and and taking care of uh, uh, physical illness and medical care, but also allowing people to be productive and to be happy. Even if we took all the money from the military, which would get us a lot closer, you know, that we, we should not have that attitude. We should say the people that make this country rich are not getting their fruits of their labor. And so we need to take what we need to allow people to live, to allow people to breathe. Um, and how we respond to this crisis, the fact that the GOP reduced the unemployment supplement additional from $600 to $200 is an example of stupidity. And why did they do it? Because the normal wage was less than what people were getting on unemployment, which means that people weren't getting paid enough to begin with. So we have to completely change that. We don't need United Airlines to to make money. We need to make sure that people have healthy diets, that they have what they need during this time of pandemic. I think the pandemic really takes a cover off of all the faults in our society. And if you had trouble seeing them before this pandemic, it should be very easy to see them during the pandemic. If we had schools that had the right class size of like 10, which is what we should have on a normal day, we would be in a completely different situation we talk about what do we do about our kids going to school. Um, and as Black people, especially, we have to be very careful. This pandemic is not going away in six months or a year. We're talking about three to five years. And what we need to be asking ourselves is, what are we going to do for the next five years from our kid? If you have a kid in the third grade today, what do you want to happen to them in terms of their education over the next five years? Okay. If you have a, a, a parent that is aging, what do you want them to be able to do? How do you want them to be able to move around the city and access medical care for the next five years, if we're lucky for the next five years? So this is not like a tornado or a hurricane that comes through and is gone in a few days or a few weeks. We're really talking about something that's likely to be with us for many years. And that means that we really have to look carefully at the root causes of racism at the root causes of racial capitalism and really begin to change things at those deep structural levels to allow us to survive. Thank you, Dr. Murray. Uh, now, uh, Stacey Davis-Gates, any comments from you? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm shook by this whole notion of five years dealing with, you know, the impact of our pandemic. And I'm shook because what we see happening in our like spaces right now is a result of already not having enough for generations. And so 
one of the things that we don't talk about enough is that we're in an economic depression. 54% of black men are unemployed. You know, over 40 million Americans are, um, you know, signing up for unemployment benefits. This is a depression. And we're also in a political season that doesn't acknowledge that. And it doesn't acknowledge it in the way that the policies are being put forth. So, you know, yes, Donald Trump is the one of the craziest people to ever sit in the White House. We got that. And the alternative is not telling us that they are going to provide universal health care for, for all of us. The alternative is also not saying that they're going to send checks to families in order to make it safer for them to figure out how to get around the city for the next five years. There's going to have to be a radical redistribution of resources in order for us to survive um, as black people, as brown people, as immigrant people in America. And it's not going to just be given to us. So this whole concept of you know, the movement, the organizing communities. This is a work of now. Like we're not in some hypothetical time. We're not reading a book. This is not ancient history. This is the right now that we're going to have to have a set of policies, decisions to come out that reflect the needs of our families in this moment. And the needs of our family in this moment will require that. So that's why, like when I hear Damon talk about, like we've defunded healthcare. We've defunded public education. We've defunded affordable housing. We've defunded everything that black people need in order to survive in a country that quite frankly, we built. That being said, why is it such a foreign concept to now look at the public safety budgets of local municipalities, um, county municipalities and figure out how to redistribute those resources. If you have to go to the Cook County Jail to receive mental health care, what what does that mean? If we are funding childbirth in the Cook County Jail, but not outside of the jail, like this stuff is upside down. The shifting of the paradigm from incarceration and surveillance and hyper-policing has got to change in order for us to survive the pandemic. And it's going to have, and it's also going to take the radical reimagination of Black people in this moment too. Like one of the things that we haven't talked about enough within our movement is how white supremacy has stunted our imagination as, as, as people of color to imagine, to envision equity and justice within the spaces that we get to occupy. Sometimes we believe the stuff that they told us about us. Um, And so there's a lot of work to be done. What I'm thinking about in this moment, though, is how do we take those who are willing, right? You know, we are mourning the loss, you know, of of our our brother of good trouble. And when Mm -hmm. I think about our brother of good trouble, I didn't see millions of people on that bridge. I saw more police and dogs on that bridge, but I didn't see millions of people on that bridge. And what we have to do is release ourselves from this concept that is going to take a mass of people to get out here and to change the world, that we have to take those who are willing. We have to be bolder than what we have been before. 
and we're going to have to participate in direct organizing. We are going to have to talk to our grandmothers, our aunts, and our mothers, because you know what? They're voting Democrat. And these are the same people who go to hospitals and are refused treatment. They're voting Democrat. And they are the same people who need the health care system to work the best for them. Think about that for a moment. We are actually thinking about sending children back to, to school communities where the HVAC will not support their health and safety. But we got cops inside of them. Millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars. And we acting like that this is really a choice. We get what we take. Thank you, Stacey. Before we go on to Damon's uh, comments, I just want to remind everyone that you can post your questions on YouTube or Facebook Live. Okay, Mr. Damon Williams, your comments, please. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I want to uh, affirm Mama Murray uh, of of some things that we're saying. Of one, uh, yes, uh, you know, the if we take. 75% of 1.8 billion, we're talking about 1.35.5 billion, and that is that is pennies on the dollar uh, of what our community needs. Um, and that also, uh, uh, yes, it also is not just about the absence uh, of a harm, but there, th that we need space for creation of, of this new reality. Um, and, and that's what I want to ground of, of what the, the design and the intention of this current moment of defund police, uh, defund CPD, abolition at large is, is aiming to speak towards, because oftentimes uh, we don't get the space to articulate our larger vision. I think this conversation uh, gives us space to do so. Uh, and so, you know, a billion dollars a year is not enough. We need trillions, uh, but it is a good practice ground to learn how to get those trillions, right? And it, it is a good first step uh, to name that, yes, it is also corporate power. It is also private equity and large corporations, which just in my personal view, uh, in the American system is a part of the state. So when I talk about state violence, the way that the large scale corporation that just got this different type of stimulus money, uh, they, are, they, are dis they are controlling our political economy in a way that creates these outcomes and they have to pay in the long-term vision. Um, and with those resources, uh, it is not just about going to see the doctor, it is about how do we have uh, a different type of food system? How do we have education and healthcare that looks different? Just my personal vision uh, when people say what do we do when we don't have police? Uh, I envision a world where no one is within walking distance of their home, of an institution that is monitoring it and preparing and offering care for their health, an institution that all offers education to all age groups, not just children, and that's happening 24 seven, uh, a farm that is producing locally for, for, for people to eat and that we are not dependent upon processed food and sugars, which are, we can classify as drugs. So we can also talk about uh, you know, our health outcomes is a, is a, is a epidemic of addiction. Um, and also that the pandemic has laid out that there were five other pandemics happening already to black people of heart disease, of, of respiratory issues, um, and, and, and that these things are compounded and that these are the contributions to the violence uh, that we talk about in these cartoonish ways in news and in media. And that is the thing that people who talk about state violence like myself and police violence are forced into. How do we then discuss or understand what's happening in the south and west side of Chicago? And what I want people to feel equipped with when we are saying divest from police, we are also saying invest in the health of these people because I don't, I don't, this is personal theory, I don't believe that people kill people unless they are in an unhealthy place, right? That is not a, a, a normal um, uh, balanced 
brain chemistry, physiological state to be in of I'm going to shoot up a funeral, right? That, that is, to me, a mental health crisis. And we have one to two public psychologists in the city of Chicago. And we have the opportunity right now, tomorrow, to make that a different reality um, and to be proactive. Uh, and so what, what the world that we are trying to see by saying, hey, this first step is taking resources away from an institution that tortured, um, that surveilled, that separates families, that puts people in a facility that causes uh, more illness and brings that illness back into our community when we're talking about jails and prisons. People do not come out of there healthier. They come out of there with sickness. And those people are not locked away or disappear forever. Uh, that is our community. That, that is the same community where we are seeing these food deserts, where we're seeing school closures, and where we see uh, this domestic, sexual, and also gun violence um, that needs a new response. Uh, and so what that looks like to me is healthcare workers, um, educators, and what we think of as social workers, but really resource providers around food, around housing, and around how to engage conflict. Uh, and that is the solution uh, to one, be preventative, right? Because when we, let's like borrow some of the language, talk about healthcare, it's not just about how do we put people on medicine when they're already sick. So when we're talking about violence as a problem of, of crisis of illness. Um, we, it's not just when people are sick, what do we come with? We come with guns. Let's be preventative. And that looks like having a new institutional reality, a new public domain, uh, a new relationship between government and corporations. And I believe that starting with naming how carceral violence as the, the, the forefront of structural violence actually creates an opening or a doorway to have this larger conversation. Because what we are talking about is transforming our society. Um, and so, you know, we, we often have to start on the city level and what our little funky mayor and our little crooked city council is doing. But this is also a state, federal and global issue. Um, and we are talking about changing the way human beings relate to each other. And what we do is for the sake of profit, we invest in this notion of scarcity, which creates disorder and illness. And then we respond to that with military solutions which kills more people and makes the problem worse and compounds it exponentially. Uh, and so let's stop that compounding uh, to get to, to the principal problem we gotta use by financial language. Uh, and so I, you know, I just appreciate this conversation because this allows us to talk about our movement as it is. Because like I, even the language of matter is abstract. It is about life. This is a movement about life, black life. This is a black life movement and health and healing is the way that we sustain life, not violence. Thank you, Damon. Now we're going to open up our discussion to questions and answers from our uh, participants, our audience. And the first question that we have is, where are the African-American politicians to assist in the eradication of racism? I'll direct the question first to Dr. Linda Murray. I'm sorry, could you repeat that question? Where are the African-American politicians in assisting the eradication of racism? Uh, well, now it depends on what you call a politician. If you ask me, where are black elected officials? Most of them are full of it, as I think most people feel, especially in our Chicago tradition. Um, so, so I think a, maybe a better question to ask is, where should we be taking leadership from? And 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 I agree with uh, an approach that thinks that lots of people can be leaders, that, uh, that you can have leaders in, in a local school, you can have leaders on a block club. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think, I, I recognize the role of leadership, I think it's very important, but I don't think leadership is seated only in the people that we elect. We aren't given good choices and we have not insisted that those people work for us. You know, 
one of the tasks when I was introduced, to, you know, one of the things I had to do when I worked at county is I, is I was a boss. And uh, when you're a boss and most people of us work, we have a boss. So my attitude is these politicians ought to work for us, but they don't act like we're their boss. Um, so I would say most of them are not doing what they should be doing. They're paying attention to the Democratic Party. They're paying attention to earning more prestige. They're paying attention to who can give them donations. And what they need to be doing is doing what their boss, that is, we the people, want them to do. Um, so it means we really do have to change our standards for who we elect and what we expect from them. Um, and this concept that you play games and you rise up in, in an old Chicago machine doesn't cut it. If you're not, if you cannot talk to the people, all of the people, but especially the people that directly elect you, then you're doing a poor job as po as an elected official and you ought to be fired. Thank you, Dr. Murray. Uh, Stacey Davis-Gates, any comments? Um, look, you know, I'm a history teacher. I, you all introduced me as a union leader, but I'm a history teacher. And so one of the things that I do understand about, you know, history is that um, government uh, decisions by elected officials lag behind um, the movement. They lag behind the need. And so, you know, I think one of the clearest understandings of how this works is if you look at the Emancipation Proclamation, the history behind that is off. There's a part of the history behind the Emancipation Proclamation that is often left out, uh, especially when you look at like Hollywood movements, movies. We were freeing ourselves. Black people were liberating themselves. The government followed behind that. And so to get to the point of where we need to be, we got to free ourselves. Like this is not something that they are willingly white supremacy, capitalized racism is not going to give black people freedom. We make too much money for them. We provide them with way too much support for them to say it makes sense. And so to the extent that we understand how we make the system work and reject that, and get ourselves free, they follow behind, they respond. And, and so if you understand that about the trajectory of us all the time, then here we are. Thank you. Uh, Jeff Howard, any comments? I would say, while I agree that some of our politicians don't necessarily serve us in the way that we would like, I also think they're in a system that doesn't allow them to um, do the things that need to be done in order to move a program, right? I, I, I just would find it difficult to believe that an African-American politician, if without governors or uh, not governors, but restrictions or fear of retribution was able to move an agenda, they'd move a bigger agenda. But it needs more than just the 15 of us on the, the Black Caucus to move an agenda, right? You have 300 other legislators uh, in the Congress that need to move those things. So you have to build a co coalition of people. So I do agree that our politicians could serve us more, but ultimately the system that we live in is the system that we live in. And to Stacey's point, I think African-Americans have to figure out how we coalesce our power and force upon this country change. You are never going to get change in a place where an individual used to own you. To, to think that you'll ever sort of level that playing field is not going to happen just through waiting for them to do it. 
It's going to take us on the back end. As Stacy said, African-Americans were liberating themselves. If you look at the civil rights movement, it took years upon years upon us until we finally started uh, moving economic pressure on the capitalists um, to get any kind of movement. So I think um, pressure has to come from outside. If we're looking for politicians to do it, they're not. That being said, that's the system with which we work in. And so we have to make sure that we try to elect political officials who have the same sort of thoughts, their hearts and minds are in the same place as us and understand how to move coalitions with those who may not have the same thoughts uh, that we do. Uh, Damon, uh, your thoughts, where are the African-American politicians? Yeah, so uh, let, you know, let me begin again with the, uh, with the local and with the campaign of defund CPD. Uh, it, you know, we have a black mayor in Chicago uh, and I would name our black mayor as against a black liberation movement and, and uh, in opposition to it. Uh, we have a, a historically embedded black caucus in our city council, and they have been complicit, if not passive, um, into a local uh, uh, system of anti-black violence um, and you know the the destruction of our community. I think uh, through political uh, for political gain uh, and for personal gain, and I think that is deeply embedded into like a larger historical thread uh, that like moving beyond just like the specifics of defund CPD and how you know our alder people outside of like Jeanette Taylor, shout, shout out, you know, there are newer examples of folks coming into space, but historically, and I think across the board, uh, there is an accountability that needs to be named about around black, black elected officials. So Stacey and Jeff said some, you know, very true things. Of it is movement where political innovation comes from um, and, and government and state always follows movement and we should not look to that, those spaces because they are not historically democratic. They are not currently democratic. Most people want a different type of health care system and most politicians are in opposition to it, right? So that, that is beyond a black problem. That is an American problem. And again, just bringing in a transformative lens of we need new forms of decision-making that are much more democratic and participatory at every level. So from the communal neighborhood all the way up to the federal and we need more global communication as well. But I, I think there needs to be an explicit naming uh, of how black politicians have actively participated in neoliberalism through the Democratic Party in a way that is not passive, uh, but in a way that's historically linked to black people participating in white supremacy. So we got Stacey on here um, and the conversation of charter schools and divestment from public education would not be made possible without the likes of the Cory Bookers and the Barack Obamas of the world. Um, and, and we need to talk about these things. We cannot continue. I think there's a tradition to deify black elected officials. I think there is a way uh, that the Democratic Party and black political professionals um, have co-opted the aesthetic and the language of movement historically. So every February and every election, they're talking about Selma and they're humming and singing, you know, these civil rights chants um, to go and then be agents of racial capitalism in a way that hurts black communities explicitly and directly. Uh, and so that is something that needs to be named is that there is a political void and a political vacuum. And we see it locally, state, and federally. Um, and I can name them all. There's very few people who don't deserve uh, to be chastised and held accountable uh, because they are supporting white supremacy and they are continuing a legacy of fighting against black liberation and a liberation of all people. Um, and they should be held accountable similar to, I don't mean to be dramatic, uh, but a black slave owner or a black slave catcher. Those things existed historically. These things are never binary. They're always complex. Uh, and we have a political establishment that is supporting imperialism, supporting capitalism, and supporting the death of black people, even if they don't consciously recognize it. 
you don't have to be intentional. The impact is there. Uh, and, you know, from Barack Obama on down, they need to not be deified. They need to be held accountable. And particularly Chicago's Black Caucus uh, has been inactive um, and are not with the people because there is the most historic Black movement is happening right now. Nothing like what's happening in the summer is documented, and they are not present, and their voice is absent, and that is intentional, and that is for political gain and their own corporate interests. Thank you, Damon. Uh, Dr. Murray, the next question is, what will it take to defeat racism in healthcare? All of these problems that we're talking about are connected. So it's it's not like, it's a, in fact, I think one of the things that hopefully uh, we've learned, those of us that are trying to change how this country functions, uh, is that we can't silo all the different struggles. You can't separate, abolish the carceral state from quality education, from excellent medical care. Um, and so the, when we move forward as a, as a united movement, we tend to move forward or backwards on all of these fronts. Um, and, and I think that what I will say, though, on behalf as a physician, what I'll say is if we cannot manage to get Medicare for all in this next time period, we are in big trouble because here we have a global pandemic. Mercy didn't. Well, Mercy was already in financial trouble. So so part of the problem is how we run our medical care system. It's not a system that is meant to survive. You can't survive as a as one single hospital anymore. Um, and so that means we have to change how we do medical care. Uh, so to me, the first small step, it's not a complete step, is to have a single payer healthcare system, Medicare for all, where it's free at the point of service for everyone that lives and breathes in the country. Uh, I lived and worked in Canada for several years. I had Canadian medical care system right there. So this, so even uh, the Affordable Care Act, which has some minor reforms, but for example, it excluded people without documents. It excluded new immigrants. You have to be here five years uh, to, to really participate in the Affordable Care Plan. So we have to decide medical care and health, which are different, medical care and health are basic fundamental human rights. And if we're going to function in a modern world, we have to insist that that be recognized and we have to provide it to anyone passing through the country. Um, and we can start by insisting that to confront this pandemic and to prevent other hospitals from closing, because other hospitals will be threatened to close because of this pandemic, from Cook County to many of our other hospitals all around uh, our area. We have to have single payer now, immediately. It should be done within the first 100 days if we happen to elect uh, a Democratic uh, president in the fall. Uh, it really has to be top on the agenda. Otherwise, more people will unnecessarily die. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Mary. Jeff, I know that you're not a physician, but you deal with a lot of healthcare workers in your local SEIU. What will it take to defeat racism in the healthcare industry? So first thing I think uh, to Dr. Uh, Murray's point is you have to have access for all, but you also have to change the way healthcare is delivered. A lot of African-Americans, particularly African-American males, won't go to the doctor because there are only 4% of doctors in this country are African-American. And a black man goes to the doctor and, mo and many times his experience is not good. So I'd rather stay home. We're also socialized to think 
it's weak to go to the doctor unless I'm just falling out. Lots of times we have to convince men. And then for women, women go to the doctor. They're not believed when they say they have headaches and they're not going away. They're not believed. They're, black women are hypersexualized by doctors. They're not believed. They're given piss poor treatment. So we can expand the healthcare system all we want until we change the way that it's delivered to African-Americans. It, it's not going uh, to be helpful. So I would say, one, we need to make sure that we uh, start getting more African-American doctors, which means we have to get our children at an early age to be prepared to go to medical school. So that means getting them in early education programs at two and three years old and not waiting till they're mm -hmm. six or seven, right? We need to have a program that sort of focuses on um, outcomes. In these medical schools, they need to have training programs for these doctors that understand cultural differences and understand their inherent conscious and unconscious un unconscious biases that a lot of those uh, quote unquote white doctors or Indian doctors have towards African-Americans. Um, I mean, there's a this is such a huge, we could talk about this for 100 years. Like this has been going on 400 years of systemic racism and we're not gonna fix it in three months. What I really worry about is, is that the energy from others goes away as we are very short-term microwave society. I worry that that energy goes away and we as African-Americans have not built a foundation to sort of move our, continue to move our work forward. I think Stacy spoke to that. We need to figure out how we're more self-determinant. Um, but in the end, we have to coalition and partner with others. Um, if you look at history, huh, they, they've quelched any of those rebellions where black and white and brown tried to work together. They have to squash those, those, the rich, the 1%, whomever you want to call it, they squash those rebellions. So we need to make sure that we keep this energy moving over the long term. And this is not a sprint. This is a marathon. Thank you, Jeff. And for our final question for the evening to the panel, uh, what would you what would you suggest we concretely do in the next weeks, months to take action on this issue? And I ask that you each limit your responses to one minute. Uh, Dr. Murray, please. I, I think the answer to that depends on who you are and where you are. As an organizer, you're always better off starting wherever you are and organize whatever you're doing. Uh, I think the key thing certainly is for me as a, as a an old person now, 71-year-old person that's been engaged in this for many decades, um, make sure you reach to other people, other communities other than the black community, especially other communities of color, and make sure those of us that are older, make sure you reach to our younger generation, not, not to tell them what to do, but, but just to be supportive and to be in dialogue because you learn something from by understanding the history, by understanding that John Lewis was considered a horrible disruptor. I mean, he sounds all nice and sweet now because they prettied up the history. But but I was I was alive and around there. He wasn't he wasn't liked at that point in time. He sort of looked like you, uh, Damon. He had a little less hair. But uh, so so reach out. So if if you're not doing anything, do something. And if you're doing something, do more. Thank you, uh, Stacy. What can we do in the next weeks and months to come coming ahead? Um. You know, there are people already doing something and we are often overlooking our black organizers who have been out in the streets almost every night organizing for the sanctity of black life. I am reminded that we have a trauma center at the University of Chicago because of young black organizers. 
I am reminded that this call to arms is being led by young Black organizers who have figured out interracial cooperation, who have figured out how to be bold and courageous and clear in this moment. They ain't asking for permission. They're not talking about respectability politics. They reject calls for for civility and moderation. And so what I'm saying to all of the um, 40 and over crowd is that humble yourself, really. Humble yourself, listen to them, pay attention, take some notes, and, 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 and be in a position to follow. We actually get a trauma center. Listen to what I'm saying now. A trauma center that has not been on the south side of Chicago in the way that University of Chicago is because young people said we needed one and did not take no for an answer. If we are clear about the trajectory of movement and who gets to lead it, everything that is happening in this moment makes sense. Humble yourself and listen. You know, kind of, you know, detach yourself from this, 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 this ball and chain of maturity and, and, and education and mortgages and all of these responsibilities that cloud our vision and make us less bold. So I would say um, for myself, for my household, for where I sit, for my influence, I'm taking their leadership. Thank you. Jeff, where do we go from here? So I, once again, I would just want to follow up what Dr. Murray said and kind of what Stacy said, right? I think those who are in the front should sort of take a step back and allow these young people to sort of move a program. But I also think we need to stay in our lanes and we can get very wide and not be very deep. So I would just say us at SEIU, one of the things we're going to continue to do is try to negotiate good contracts for our members and especially those that uh, deal with the common good, societal good, right? I think those are things that we can do. I think we need to make sure that we win these elections. I think we need to make sure we pass the fair tax that's coming up here in this year's election. Um, I think in the end, we have to continue to have the conversations about and be um, not afraid to have difficult conversations with those that don't look like us about how the things that they've done over the years affect us. I think we need to continue to have those conversations. And I think we need to dig in for the long haul and not um, be uh, sprinters or flashes in the in the night, right? And then we're gone in three months and we're off to the next sort of uh, whatever the issue of the day is. Because I've already started to hear whispers of things and I won't go into it now, but I'll just say African-Americans need to stay steadfast in making sure this agenda moves, allowing these young people the space and offering the support for them to be able to move this agenda because they're moving things I didn't think that we could possibly do. And so uh, to Stacy's point, I've, I've definitely stepped back and I'm trying to follow young brothers like Damon and, and those young folks who are out here on the front lines trying to move a real agenda. Thank you. Damon, you have the last word. And, and I'm gonna try to be as succinct as possible. Uh, I, I affirm and appreciate, you know, love that, that I'm hearing. Uh, and, and we're right, organizing is proven to work. So I, I shout out V. Morris Moore and, and Tweet G and everybody from Fly and Stop of the Trauma Campaign as a really great example. Um, and so in this time, like I said, this most politically active time in human history. Um, so there's a multitude of things to, to plug into, uh, but you can sign on to the demands of defund CPD at bit.ly 
back backlash defund CPD. If you just look up the uh, the hashtag or look up the Black Abolitions Network on um, on social media, and that way the actions that you are doing, uh, this, you don't have to just come to the thing that's happening downtown or the thing that's happening at Lori's. You can also participate because we need tens and tens of thousands of people participating in this transformative time. Uh, and so what we need is a political insurgency. Uh, and I think you know SEIU and CTU is a really great example. Healthcare workers should follow. Uh, we should be disrupting decision makers until we have new systems of decision making. Uh, and so that looks like insurance companies, hospitals, those boards, private equity, uh, healthcare workers, nurses, doctors, folks with that also social respectability because they think we're crazy. Uh, if you are out here in the streets talking about we need to transform our society while we get these little wins, like the, the, the victories that we saw from the strike coming out of this last year, we need to multiply that strategy everywhere because like I started with, Racial capitalism is killing us, um, and it is the most un-American thing historically to treat Black people justly and to give us what we need. So we need the whole society to really get up and transform the way we interact with each other. And I think political action and organizing, uh, and that doesn't only have to be disruption in the streets. That can also look like popular education and learning about these histories. Uh, that also looks like civic engagement and figuring out how to plug in to these institutions as they're working and to change and to alter and shift. Uh, but definitely look up Defund CPD. You can sign on and endorse uh, the, the demands right now. And then we are looking to create uh, avenues uh, have created avenues for folks to plug into the campaign and take this message and intersect it with all of these other fights that we're talking about. Because like everyone said, this is not one issue. This is across the board. Uh, so defunding the police, I believe, is an entry point towards organizing, towards creating a more just society. Thank you, Damon. That is all the time that we have for tonight. Thank you to all the folks who submitted their questions. We also want to thank Haymarket Books for hosting our event. Our speakers, we want to thank you immensely for the invaluable uh, uh, work that you've been doing and that you continue to do. Dr. Uh, Linda Murray of the uh, 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 Physicians of National Health Program, Stacey Davis-Gates, Vice President of CTU, Jeff Howard, Vice President, Executive Vice President of SEIU, and Damon Williams of the Black Abolitionist Network. Great job tonight. Uh, no matter how old or how woke we are, it gets uh, it's it gets uh, important. It's important to stay curious and to continue learning. We're in the fight of our lives, and solidarity in the moment has never been more important. We hope you'll take a, take uh, action to support all of the frontline workers who are battling COVID and the incalculable larger battle against racism. And in the words of the late Congressman John Lewis, get in some good trouble. We'll see you in the streets. Good night, everyone.